the unicameral update. Published by the Unicameral Information Office under the direction of the Clerk of the Legislature. Welcome to the Interim Catch-Up. The goal of these bonus episodes is to provide perspective on the intricacies of the Nebraska Unicameral Legislature and the people who make up the 49 members, via one-on-one -on -one interviews. Now, on to our conversation with Senator Dungan. Welcome, Senator. Could you please introduce yourself for the listeners? Yeah, I'm George Dungan, Senator for Legislative District 26, which is right here in Northeast Lincoln. Senator, the first question I have for you is, what aspect of being a Nebraska state senator did you not expect going in? Or what would the average Nebraskan not realize about Nebraska state politics? That's a really interesting question. I, I, you know, I think that early on, I'd seen a lot of media about politics. I'd watched TV shows. You know, I'm a big fan of the West Wing. People talk about Veep. And so you have these sort of representations of what politics look like. And some of them get it right. And some of them get parts of it right. But there's a lot of things that I think the public don't see. The thing that really caught me off guard, and maybe this is unique to Nebraska, and I'm not entirely sure, is that despite the acrimony that a lot of people may see on the floor, or despite some of the division that people might see in the news, there's actually a lot of camaraderie in the legislature that I was surprised and really happy about, actually. When I came in for orientation, you know, we have this whole week-long orientation for those at home who don't know that before you become a state legislator. And we came in and I got to meet people all across the political spectrum. And I really valued and appreciated the fact that there was a concerted effort for folks to just get to know each other as people. And so I really, I really value that because I think it's important that we actually see each other as human beings. And so, yeah, I think that people watching at home may not realize that when you're walking through the hallway, when we're in the cafeteria getting coffee, whatever it might be, there's actually just a lot of really friendly conversation that happens totally separate and apart from politics. And I really value that because I think that that's how you actually get to know somebody as a person. What subject matter would you say you had the most experience with before becoming a state senator? And has that expertise shifted with your work on legislative committees? Yeah, so my background is in law and specifically in criminal defense. So I served as a public defender here in Lancaster County for almost a decade prior to serving in the legislature. So a lot of my background comes from the legal field. And specifically, you know, I did a lot of trial work. I say oftentimes, everybody in this legislature is an expert in something, but it's a very, very small something. And the rest of it, we're all just trying to learn and figure out as we go along. And I try very much to embody that in that when I'm talking to folks who are subject matter or experts about other things, I try really hard to convey to them that I'm just trying to learn as I, as I listen. So yeah, coming in, my background definitely was in criminal justice. And that has a bunch of different facets, right? Whether we're talking about evidentiary rules and sort of the rules of the courtroom, how that operates, or we're talking about sentencing and how our, our courts are implementing sentences for various people, pellet level stuff. So I feel like that was kind of my expertise coming in. I also had a little bit of background in a few other areas like education. When I was in law school, I actually had the really amazing and fortunate opportunity to teach for a little while in DC uh, when I was in law school out there. 
And so I had a little bit of background in education. A lot of my friends work in the education field. So that was an area that I feel like I had at least some knowledge about. Expertise might be too strong of a word, but knowledge about. Then sort of those two things intersecting, I worked in juvenile court for a long time. So juvenile law and working with kids in the court system, something I feel like I had background in. So when I came in, that was absolutely uh, the area that I think I was the most comfortable in and, and well-versed in. But to your point, you, you get on these committees and you have to learn a little bit more about areas that you maybe aren't as familiar with or didn't have as much interest in early on. But I think it's, it's been really fascinating learning about all of the different issues that fall into my committees. So I'm on revenue and I'm also on banking. I would say that I know far more about both of those subjects now than I did before the first session. And part of that is I was very intentional about making sure that I dove into all of the various subject matters that we were touching from sort of a 30,000 foot view, but then also getting into the trenches and in the minutia of how these things work. I think it's really important if we're gonna be making decisions about these kind of laws that you know about them. And I've talked to folks who, for example, ended up on agriculture who had no background in that at all. And the people that that happened to who really weren't expecting it, I think really loved that experience. You know, they expressed to me, they loved learning new subject matter. They loved kind of going in head first and making sure they could really get their brains wrapped around these subjects. And so I tried to approach it the same way. You know, the banking world was not as familiar to me <laughs> coming into this, uh, just given my sort of background. But it's been an area that I think is really fascinating. I've met a lot of really interesting, amazing people in the banking and insurance fields. And so it's an area that I definitely feel like I have a better grasp on now, but I'm always learning. And I think it's important for senators in general to always be trying to learn a little bit more about these subject matters and not just assume they already know everything. You mentioned your previous work as an attorney. How has that experience shaped your time in the legislature? Do you have existing relationships with members of the judiciary branch that you may not have had without your legal background? Oh, man, uh, I could talk about this forever. <laughs> and so uh, I will try to keep my answers as concise as possible. Having been a public defender for almost a decade, there are certain skills that I think you learn in that role that translate to this work. One of those that I talked about a lot, I think this session, and I've talked about it in you know other conversations with people, is when you're in the courtroom a lot, you sort of have to cooperate with all of the different parties that are there, right? It's an adversarial system. You know, we always see the, again, the courtroom dramas of people yelling and fighting and pounding on the table. In reality, I would say the vast majority of courtroom settings are much more amicable than that. And in order to oftentimes get the best outcome, you have to be cooperative and frankly collaborative in some settings too. Defense attorneys know all the prosecutors and the prosecutors and defense attorneys know all the judges. And you all talk on a regular basis because as a public defender, your life is being in court. I know some attorneys who go to court maybe once a week, maybe once a month. But in my past job, I was in court doing hearings every single day from nine to five. And so you really do have to learn to work with people and find common ground. And so I think that's been really influential in sort of the way that I've tried to approach this job. Again, it goes back to what I talked about earlier. You know, you get to know people as human beings, you get to understand people's nuances and backgrounds. But at the end of the day, if you don't work respectfully and cooperatively with people, in the courtroom, it's not going to get you anywhere. And so I've always felt it was important to build those relationships. So I think that absolutely influenced the way that I approach this job. Another one, and this is what I can also go on about forever, so <laughs> my apologies. The whole underlying basis 
for what it meant for me to be a public defender is that you believe that every human being has value and that every person has a story. I genuinely believe that we are a sum of all of our parts and that we all have unique backgrounds and histories that matter. And so in my past job, a lot of times what I saw my role as, obviously an attorney first, but in addition to that, you really are a storyteller. And your job, I think, is to talk to folks, understand folks, show empathy and understand where they come from. And then you synthesize all of that. And your job is to convey that information, whether it's to the prosecutor or to a jury or to a judge. Your real role, I think, is to tell that person's story in a way that is authentic and is able for people to understand where that person's come from. And so in this job, so much of what we do is have constituents reach out to us and say, you know, Senator Dungan, here's an issue and here's why it affected me. Or we do our own research and we go out and we talk to folks in the community and say, you know, how does LB whatever affect you? And we go and knock on doors and we hear people's actual life stories. And then we come back here into the legislature. I think if I'm doing my job right, I'm then taking that information, aggregating it, synthesizing it, and then sharing those stories in the legislature in a way that is actually making an impact on the way that we conduct ourselves. And so... I think that without my background, that would be a little bit more difficult. And, you know, that's not to say that anybody's an expert in it. We're always trying to get better. But absolutely, I think storytelling is one of our biggest jobs here. Because if we do that correctly, we can actually have an influence on policy in this state in a way that I think positively impacts people and makes a difference in everyday lives instead of just using talking points or, you know, sort of overviews of things. But when we actually get into the nitty gritty and we start sharing people's stories, we can have a real impact. You talk about being a storyteller. It was very evident that when you arrived at the legislature, you were comfortable almost right away speaking on the mic. You also had the ability to break down complex legal issues in ways that the average Nebraskan could follow. What about your background makes this possible? Additionally, when a senator goes to speak on the mic, do they know what they're going to say before they get up there? Do they most often have a script? notes, or just ad lib? Yeah, so to the first part, I, A, I really appreciate that. That means a lot to hear from people who have been here and, and know this all way better than I do. And B, you know, I, I think that your background working as an attorney, a lot of what you're doing is you're taking this incredibly complicated rule system that we have, and you're trying then to break it down and articulate it to either your client and say, hey, you know, here's the stuff we're dealing with, here's how it works, and here's how we got to get to a certain outcome or you're breaking it down and you're talking to a jury. And one of the things they, they teach you, I think, in a lot of trial trainings or things that you go to is you got to talk to people in words that they understand. And that is not to say or to assume that people are stupid. I do the opposite. I think that we should be raising the common denominator and assuming that people are smarter than some people treat them because I think people tend to understand a lot more than we give them credit for. That being said... <laughs> I know that it can be really easy, especially when you're talking about something like the law, to fall into legalese and to fall into lawyer speak. And I do it often. You know, I, I was just uh, talking earlier about sometimes as a lawyer, you order your own transcript and you have to go back and read <laughs> what you said to a judge or to a jury. There are many times that I've done that and I've seen myself slip into legalese and slip into these things that I think are not fully articulated or well-spoken. And I'm just kicking myself, like, oh, come on, why'd you say it like that? And so I, I definitely still do it, but I think that you're taught to do your best 
to break things down in ways that people understand. And so having that background of speaking about really complicated issues to clients and to juries definitely is an added benefit in this job. Because again, like you said, a lot of what we're doing, I think, is talking to our colleagues. When we're on the mic, we're trying to make sure they understand our arguments and where we come from. But we're also talking to people at home. More and more, the legislature has become spectator sports than I think it maybe even used to be. And the amount of people that I know who watch the legislature just constantly when we're in session is, is shocking. You know, when we're on the mic, I think that we're talking to our colleagues and we're trying to actually persuade, which I think is a really valuable role, but we're also talking to the people at home. And so, you know, if we're talking about due process clause or equal protection or something like that, I try very hard to break that down in a way that's at least understandable and not too full of legalese, but I absolutely fail <laughs> sometimes. And I go back and I watch clips of myself and think, all right, I could do better at that. So it's a constant battle, but it is something that I think my background has trained me for. To your second point about whether or not a senator knows what they're going to say when they get on the mic, I think it differs vastly. So I know for me, I tend to walk up to the mic with outlines. I very rarely walk up there without knowing at all what I'm going to say. Rarely do I just hit my button and then walk up there and kind of make it up as I go. I think it's really important for me at least to have sort of an outline of introduction, points that I'm going to make. And, and, and frankly, I treat it the same way that I would, again, in talking to a jury or, or talking to a witness. Sometimes I deviate <laughs> a little more than I would like to from that outline. And a lot of it depends on what else is being said on the mic and those kind of things. But for me, I think it's really helpful to have at least a little bit of information. Certainly, I think a lot of our colleagues, some people get up there and have nothing, and they sound incredible. Some people get up there and have completely written out scripts that, are, that they write before they get up there, and they, they essentially read them, and they sound great. And so I think that really, it's, it's got to be whatever's best for your own method. I've learned from myself that if I try to read a script, it sounds awful. I've tried it before on the mic. I've tried it before in committee hearings. I've tried it in past endeavors. And I just, for whatever reason, think that I struggle to sound natural. And I think it sounds stilted. Sometimes there are things that you want to make sure are set on the mic. And so I think it's important to read off of a script. Legally, for example, it's very important that I hit A, B, and C. And again, I know that I can get long-winded. <laughs> I can start talking in circles. So if I have a concern that I'm going to miss some major points, I'll sometimes be a little bit more scripted. But for me, I think it's easier to just have a general outline. And for those at home, uh, you can't see my podium, but it usually has like seven or eight sticky notes stuck to it with things that I've written down that I immediately can't read. <laughs> and so uh, I will write myself a little outline, sticky note it, walk away, come back when it's my time in the queue, look down, say, oh no, I can't read any of these notes I gave myself, and then try to remember what I said. So it's, it's, a, it's always a work in progress, but that's kind of the best method for me to sort of know what I'm going to say. As an attorney, you've talked about how there are rules of the court that must be followed. The legislature also has a rule book that senators have to familiarize themselves with. Why is it important that senators, especially new senators, learn the rules? When I was coming in, I was told by a ton of people that the best thing you could do is read the rule book and then read it again. <laughs> and so I, I understood that academically. Like, I understand that it's important to understand the structure of whatever body you're in. But it wasn't until I got in there and started watching it happen in real time that I understood just how important it is to understand the minutia of the rules. And what I mean by that is, like, a lot of times, once you start a debate, the train has left the station and it is going. And it is just happening. You're sitting there on the floor and things are happening and somebody will say something and you look around and maybe you just got back from lunch and people are sleepy or there's not a lot of people in the room, but nobody, for example, objects to something. 
And it's a thing that you think otherwise, maybe if they were paying attention, they would. And then if they don't object to that thing, it just moves on and you've missed your opportunity. And it can change entire outcomes of debate. It can change entire structures of how we're going to you know, do the procedure for the rest of the day. And so I don't think I realized until I got in there, oh, this is this is important and it happens fast. So I think that, you know, for freshmen to read those rules and then continue to reread them and try your best to live them, you know, day in and day out is really, really helpful. I think the weirdest thing for me going from the courtroom to the legislature, and I said this on the mic multiple times this year, is the rules in the legislature are, for all intents and purposes, flexible. And what I mean by that is the chair makes a ruling and then subsequently is overruled by the body, that's kind of it. There is no appeal that you can make to a higher court. There is no, okay, let's pause and go to the governor and have them decide, or let's go to the Supreme Court and have them decide. It just kind of happens. And I think that that was surprising to me, and I understand the need for it. I think that flexibility on the floor is important as things evolve and as debates happen. You have to be able to sort of adapt to those things. So I understand the need for the flexibility. But it just really took me off guard how little it takes to really say, yes, that's the rule, but we're going to move past that. And that's not a partisan issue. It's just a a thing that I think is fascinating about our our Unicam. I really appreciate that we have a rules committee and that I think genuinely we have one of the most transparent processes and procedures to modify the rules of the legislature where we have hearings and there's witnesses and we can then see the debate about what rule changes should happen and then we have to vote on it as a body. So I think that's really important that we remain vigilant about sort of those rules. I think that being able to understand them and then implement them is vital. And throughout this entire session, you learn from people who have been there before you and having, you know, other senators and and people in the Capitol to talk to and ask questions about is huge. And I was learning things about the rules up until the last day of this last session. And I'm sure that I'm going to continue learning more about the rules this next session. But it is really important that you know how to utilize the rules and that you do so appropriately. Let's switch to a hypothetical. If you could only bring one legislative bill for the remainder of your time in the legislature, but it was guaranteed 49 votes and no governor's veto, what bill do you bring? Oh, that's hard. I think one of the things that we've worked on as a legislature already that we need to continue focusing on is the way that we address criminal justice issues. So obviously my background, we've talked about quite a bit, but whether you talk about anecdotes or you talk about stats, we know that we have a broken system here at Nebraska. It doesn't mean that there's not a lot of amazing, well-intentioned people trying to make it work. But if you look at us, I think we're currently number two in overcrowding in the nation, second Alabama, and that's not a stat that we want to be in with regards to our prison overcrowding. So we know, and I think we all agree, and this was talked about by everybody on the mic this last year, we know we have an issue. And the question is just, what do we do to fix it? I believe that if I could pass something that would just sail through and not get vetoed, it would be substantive reform with regards to our criminal justice system. The question is, what does that actually mean, right? Because a lot of times when you get into these omnibus criminal justice bills, it is really nuanced and it's it's layers of sentencing reform along with rehabilitative services. I think that if I could get something done, it would be a real substantive shift from a punitive system to a rehabilitative system. There are absolutely community safety needs that have to be taken into account, but I think we're doing a disservice to our communities by putting people in prisons, not providing them with actual rehabilitative services, dealing with mental health issues, dealing with substance use disorder, and then putting them back out on the street, essentially setting them up for failure. And that's hard on the people who that happens to, that's 
hard for their families, and it creates communities that are less safe. And so if we can do a true formative shift into an actual rehabilitative system that focused our time and our resources on addressing mental health issues and substance use disorders in prisons, so that way when people are getting back out, it would have such a huge effect on overcrowding by reducing recidivism. It would have a better effect on community safety by creating this community of people who are coming back into society in a way where they are equipped to deal with all the issues out in the world. And it's gonna be a better bang for our buck. Right now, we're throwing money at a problem, but we're not fixing the underlying issue. We're just putting band-aids on things. And the more that we do that, it's a waste of taxpayer dollars. And in a state where I think we all agree that fiscal responsibility is important, it seems ill-conceived to continue to try to just put the fire out instead of stopping the fires we're starting in the first place. And that's the thing that I talk about often is we need to be investing in things upstream, whether it's prior to adjudication in juvenile services or once people are actually in the prisons. I think we just need to be investing in ways to fix these problems before they get out of hand. So, you know, I can sit here for the next three and a half hours and talk about the different nuances of what that reform might look like. But if I could get something done, it would be to continue the hard work that we've seen over the last many sessions of people on the left and on the right saying, we have an issue here in Nebraska on prison overcrowding. We know we have to do something about it, but let's actually get it done. This last session, I think there was a lot of really amazing consensus that came together on that that I was really impressed by. And I think that I would focus really hard on, on trying to continue that conversation to make sure we leave the state in a better place than I found it if I'm lucky enough to be here for eight years. Transitioning to life outside of the legislature, how do you maintain your balance between your career, your home life, and your service as a state senator? It's a work in progress. <laughs> that, that's what I'll say. You know, this being my first interim, it's been really interesting kind of learning what that looks like. Yeah, I, I talked to a lot of folks and they said, your interim session, the first couple of months, nobody comes into the Capitol, nobody interacts with anybody. And then it slowly starts to pick up a little bit. And then come fall, you're kind of back to being a senator. And then it's just boom, you're right back into it in January. I had a really hard time the first like two weeks after the session was over, slowing down. It was sort of that like waking up and you still have the adrenaline coursing through your body and then you wake up and you put on your suit and then you start to walk to your car and you're like, well, wait, I don't have to go anywhere. What, what am I doing? And my fiance would give me a hard time because she'd be like, why are you going to the Capitol? There's nobody there. Who are you talking to? And I was like, I just have to go. I have to feel like I'm doing this, you know? And so that was an interesting shift. My main endeavor this interim prior to getting ready for the session has been getting my own law practice started up again. So now that I'm in the legislature, I can't work at the public defender's office anymore, but I did get my own solo practice set up. And so that got off the ground maybe about a month ago. So I spent most of June and July, just jumping through the hoops of getting an LLC set up and figuring out office space and just remembering, you know, where to stand when you walk into the courtroom and things like that. And so I've actually taken just a few clients here or there. And so that's kind of been an adjustment for me too. You know, the interim right now, at least, it looks like sort of a balance between personal life, capital life, and then I call it my, my legal life. Uh, and so I have to find time for those. And I think I've done a decent job of balancing those three, kind of bouncing between them day to day. Like today, for example, I'm in the Capitol all day. Meetings this morning, meetings this afternoon, but I'm in court on Thursday, and then I'll probably go to my law office and meet with clients all the rest of that day there. So I think it's, a, it's an interesting balance there. 
The harder one, I think, for a lot of people is the personal life aspect, right? This job of being a state senator, if you let it, it can take over your entire life. And I think there is a time and a place for pouring yourself into this work because I think you owe it to your constituents. I, I didn't work for two years as hard as I possibly could to get here to then blow it off. And so I think there's definitely a time and a place to take it incredibly seriously. But I'm trying really hard to heed the advice that I've gotten from people who have come before me that you can't just let it take over your entire life. Because if you do that, you burn out. It really gets exhausting for your family and your friends. And so I'm trying really hard to balance that. So in June, I took a few trips with my fiance and we kind of bounced around the country a little bit. They weren't entirely vacation trips because they were things like weddings and chaperoning trips for other groups. And so I'm hesitant to call it a vacation, <laughs> but we definitely got to do a few things like that. And so I do try very hard to kind of balance those things. During the session, it's a lot harder. You know, during the session, at least for me, I was here 8.30, 8 in the morning, try to be here before a nine o'clock check-in, and then you're just here all day. And I think a lot of times people ask me, you know, what is it, what's your day-to-day -day look like when you're a senator? And the answer to that is it's always different, but there's always something. You know, we are on the floor in the morning, almost always have a, a lunch meeting. If I don't have a lunch meeting, I try to go to the gym <laughs> and actually get a little bit of me time over the noon hour, but that's not always possible. Then you're busy all afternoon in committee hearings or back on the floor, and then you have dinner meetings and events that you have to go to sometimes or all the time, you have late nights. <laughs> and so it turns into this thing where you absolutely could be busy 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. every night. So you have to carve out a little bit of time, but I sort of have this understanding, I think, that when we're in session, it's full-time center time. And when you're out of session, you have a little bit more time to back off, treat your other priorities as a little bit higher on your list, and, and try to balance that. So for me, it is, as with a bunch of these things we've talked about, a work in progress. I'm still learning. This is my first interim, and it's been very interesting. But after the short session we have coming up, we have, what, eight months off? Which is a long time. I mean, that's eight months in between sessions. And so, you know, learning to juggle my, my legal career and personal things during that time, I think is going to be really important because your life is your life. And I think you have to make sure you take care of like family priorities like that or else you can't come here and do a good job. So it's a constant struggle. Listeners may not know, but you are an avid biker. Where are some of the more underrated trails in Nebraska? And what is your longest bike ride within the state? Oh, wow. Okay. So Nebraska has a really impressive and incredible trail network, one that I would love to expand. And I plan on addressing that as time goes on and talking with some of my colleagues about what we can do as a legislature to encourage that. If I could just put a plug in real quick, you look at other states like Missouri, Arkansas, even Iowa. And they have a really robust bike tourism industry. Like right across the border in Iowa, they have the Wabash Trail, which is just this beautiful trail that's it's long, it's gorgeously and really meticulously maintained. And you have people from all over the country who come to the Wabash Trail. They come, they stay in like Airbnbs, they'll go ride it, go down to Arkansas. And they've just done this incredibly impressive investment in bike infrastructure. I think the Razorback Greenway is the name of one of their trails down there that's like 40 miles from Fayetteville, Mentonville, or something like that. But they have just like mountain bikes and, and road bike trails. And it's become this place where if you talk to anybody in the bike community, they know about Arkansas. And they're like, oh yeah, I went down there and I've ridden this thing. And so there's this really interesting, like robust community that's really large that I think we could be tapping into. 
So Nebraska has, for example, the Cowboy Trail, which is a very long trail that we've continued to expand. But I would love to see the Cowboy Trail go across the entire state. And I think the long-term goal for the Cowboy Trail is to have it connect to a larger trail network that goes from coast to coast. And so if we were able to keep investing in that, it's really not that expensive compared to a lot of other investments. But the return on that investment when it comes to bike tourism is huge. So that's a thing I'm very interested in. But for me, I also will always be a huge advocate for our Lincoln Trails. For those who don't know, the, the trail network here in Lincoln for, for running and biking and, and hiking and everything is just amazing. We win awards nationwide every year because you're able to kind of get anywhere you want to go on the trails here in Lincoln. You can commute, you can take longer rides. It's really, it's really great. This last weekend, for example, I participated in this thing called the Golden Ride, which is a overnight trip where you leave in Lincoln at the Hub Cafe here. Go down south, it's about a 44-mile ride. Go to Beatrice, camp in Beatrice overnight in the park there. You know, see the local sites, go to the breweries there, check out some of the music scene, and then hop on your bike the next morning and come back. So I did that Saturday and Sunday, and it was just like the perfect weather. It was fall, it was beautiful. I was listening to the Huskers game on my headphones as I was biking. And so, you know, the fact that we have things like that in Nebraska is really cool. And I would love to see more like that. My longest ride that I've done, I've done 100 miles before in Nebraska in one day. And I can't remember exactly where it was, but it was sort of a big loop that I did around Hastings. So every year I do a thing called the Tour Day Nebraska, which is a five-day bike tour that does a loop in different parts of the state every year. And it's sort of this opportunity for people to go check out the Sand Hills or northeast nebraska up in niobrara or you know central nebraska or we did one even out in the panhandle one year where we even biked a little bit into wyoming we got to see chimney rock and all those things so it's an incredible opportunity but it's also a lot of biking and so one day when i was doing one out by hastings uh, i did 100 miles and it was not easy and i certainly bonked a little bit by the end and i think i was a little bit dead for a couple days afterwards but it was awesome and so Nebraska's got some amazing potential to become one of those states. I just think it'd be really, really cool if we could find ourselves at the top of that list attracting these people from all over the country to come here and, and invest in our communities, you know, like Ord or Valentine or other places where you could have these bike trails be a part of what brings people out there. Speaking of Lincoln and your district, here's another hypothetical. If you were given an unlimited budget, but it could only be spent in your district for one evening— where do you go and what do you do? Well, <laughs> in LD26, we have a really interesting blend of both residential and then also sort of like small neighborhood storefront areas that are really blossoming right now. So, for example, right by where I live, there's University Place, which is a little neighborhood, uh, technically the neighborhood I live in that has restaurants, and we just got a storefront theater that popped up. We have an art gallery there, sort of an art center, really is what it is, called the Lux. We have good food, we have good drinks. So, you know, I think the ideal day, I would start by going to the Lux Art Center, and I would take some of their classes. Because one of the things that Lux does is they are the biggest provider in the state for art classes. So for adults, for kids... You go, you can do pottery, you can do screen printing, you can learn how to do oil paints, and they do one-off classes where you go and just do it for like two hours, or you can go and do these for like weeks and kind of do progressive classes along the way. So I think you go, get a group of people together, go hang out at the Lux, take a couple classes, you know, do the pottery. They have an incredible pottery studio out there, maybe do some screen printing, take a walk through the Lux, check out their amazing art they have in there. I mean, we have art from the Lux that is 
nationwide. I mean, it's just an incredible gallery and studio space. From there, probably walk out into University Place, which is the, the greater neighborhood out there. And they've actually done a project at the Lux that kind of helps the whole neighborhood where it's this mural walk, where I think last year they had 11 murals. I can't remember exactly how many. A couple years ago, they had these murals go up and now they do a mural walk around University Place where you can do a guided tour and go check out all of the different murals and you know learn a little bit about the artists. And in doing so, really get to experience University Place sort of on foot and get to see it up close, which I think is just great. From there, probably head up to one of my favorite spots, which is a brewery we have up in LD26 called Cosmic Eye. What's great about Cosmic Eye, and I've had a lot of events there, so people who are listening who know me are probably rolling their eyes right now because all I do is talk about Cosmic Eye. It's a, it's a brewery that's popped up in an old laser tag facility. It used to be Laser Quest for those Lincolnites listening at home. I'm sure you remember Laser Quest. I think I had my 13th birthday at Laser Quest. And so Laser Quest went under. And then after they, they went under, they sold it to these folks who started this, uh, this cosmic eye there. And what's really cool is they've left a lot of the original decorations from the Laser Tag place. And so you walk in and sort of the area where you sit looks like what I remember when I was a kid being in this laser tag arena. And then in the back where they do the brewing, they have an event space where it's the old laser tag facility. So it's huge and they've got like neon lights and stuff like that. But you can rent it out for community events. I just hosted a town hall there where we invited folks to come talk about the session. I think they started having shows there recently so that it's like they, they can do music. So as a part of this day, I'd go to Cosmic Eye, probably hang out there for a bit, try some of the craft beers, and then, you know, maybe see a show in back and be able to enjoy that. So LD26 is special. We're not ostentatious. It's low key. But I think that you can really balance between different neighborhoods like that. Start in University Place, see some art, go on a mural walk, head to Cosmic Eye, try some craft beers, see a show in the back. And the whole thing takes about five minutes to drive across. So <laughs> it's all very easy to get to and from. And then probably end it with a bike ride. We've got a couple of really nice trails that go through the area. You can easily bike around the entirety of LD26 in a very short period of time, but just kind of putzing around on a bike and checking out the different trails, I think would be a good way to end the day. Switching back to the legislature, what would you consider as a successful tenure as a state senator? I think trite though it may sound, I think if you can walk away at the end of eight years of being in the legislature and be able to say, I actually helped somebody, be able to look back and say, tangibly, I made a benefit to someone and made somebody else's life better, then I think you've succeeded. Obviously, I think we'd all like to see it be big picture. And I think that's what I'm working towards, our big picture, substantive changes that actually fundamentally help people who don't right now have access to certain things or maybe get left behind by society from time to time. But even if you can have just finite amount of people that you were able to help, I think that would be a real success. Last question we've got for you is, what are your plans for the remainder of the interim? For the time being, we're focusing a lot on just trying to make sure we get our bills together. Uh, when you first get elected, there are only a couple of months you have to kind of get bills ready for that first session. So this interim, we were really excited to have a little bit of extra time to say, okay, what do we want to focus on? What are we interested in? And so I think we're just focusing between here and the start of session on getting those bills worked out. You know, we have three interim studies. I don't believe there's going to be a hearing from those three, but we're still collecting a lot of information on them and then trying to make sure we take that information and then adapt it into legislation, I think is really important. So Mostly just focusing on getting ready there. We just hired a new AA in my office, so she's going to be starting probably sometime in the next month. So getting her 
up to speed and make sure she's ready. That's been another focus. And then uh, just trying to take some breaths still before January hits. Because I anticipate once January hits, like I said earlier, it's going to be like a train leaving the station. It's just going to go again. So doing my best to kind of just be at peace <laughs> a little bit with the interim and take a little more time. But certainly things have already started to ratchet up. I mean, all through August, I saw my calendar getting busier and busier. And then here in September, it kind of feels like it's back to not full time, but certainly like three quarters time with meetings every day and things like that. So trying to enjoy the quote unquote break as much as I can. That's all the questions we had for you today. Thank you for your time, Senator. Yeah, thanks for having me. This has been great. 